You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Okay, today's sermon text comes from Acts 28, starting at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the Forum of Appius in the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And then starting in verse 23. After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, Go to these people and say, You will always be listening, but never understanding. And you will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Good morning, King's Cross Church. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here, and excited for us to see now what is the conclusion of the book of Acts. That we've actually, if you haven't been with us since this point, we started August 28th, 2022, in Acts chapter 1. And here we are, nearly, quite nearly a year later, uh, coming to the very final chapter. We've seen a new place. We've moved to a new building. We've got new faces, new members. What a great year it's been. And it's been all journeying through to the end of where we are now in Acts chapter 28 with Paul. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll have the text on the screen, but I encourage you to open that up. There's Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. That's our gift to you if you don't have one with you. But, um, but we want to dig in to see what exactly is going on here at the end. How does Luke decide to wrap up this, uh, this story, this narrative that he's been laying out for us about the beginning of the new church, that advancing the kingdom of God through this early church. So I'm going to ask that uh, the Spirit of God be with us this morning and uh, that you join me in prayer as I do. Father, I'm thankful for the privilege it is to, to walk through Acts like this, to have your word with us, to open this up, to see what you've done in the lives of your early church and the way that that works itself out today in our lives. 
I'm grateful for uh, this body that's here with us. I'm grateful for the way I've seen you work in their lives, and I ask that you continue to change us and open our eyes up to make us look more like Jesus. And I ask all this in his name. Amen. So as we approach here the end of the book, I'm going to walk through this uh, these passages that, that are encompassed here and kind of give you an overview of what's really happening as we've done here in the last little bit. It's been a lot of journeys. Uh, it's a journey narrative of Paul heading all the way from S- Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now on uh, last week, we got to Malta, and here we are arriving in Rome. And, and, and over it all, as we're looking at this, I want you to understand that this ending, this entire, this entire book— But even in this last chapter is an invitation to you and I to join the mission of advancing God's kingdom and to do it with all boldness and unhindered like Paul. I mean, that last verse is a nice summary. So let's dive in, starting in verse 11, to see exactly how Paul now makes his way to Rome. It says, in, uh, starting in verse 11, After three months we set sail in Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. I think I skipped over some maps that were on the screen, didn't I? Weren't they? Look at me. I'm so terrible. I'll get back to that later. All right. So, uh, three months on the island of Malta. We've seen that they, they venture out from the port to try to, and, and if you actually, the, the map that was up there, man, you can bring that up there. I'll show you real quick. Sorry about that. Um, this, is a, this is interesting to me because I don't think I put it in quite the scale. As they left Caesarea, uh, Paul sails on a ship. He's under guard, uh, Roman guard. They're heading to Rome, and they land at this place over here called Fair Havens. All right, that little tiny dot on the side of Crete. Maybe you recognize the bottom of the boot. There's Italy. We're out in the all right, Mediterranean, the Adriatic Sea. All right, they are trying to, they decide Fair Havens is not good for the winter. So they're going to try to get, check this out, from here to Phoenix. They get off the coast and a northeastern hits them, and where do they go? This way. Their journey going through the ocean for two weeks, just drifting at sea. So you want to get a little understanding of the drama that's unfolding from last week when we talked about this. And they fortunately make their way as the winds are blowing them at its will through the ocean or through the sea all the way to Malta. And that's that little island they land on. Okay. The next part that we're heading to, I guess it's the next map, is up the coast now that winter's over to get to Rome. He is on a haul, man. I'm just saying a drive to Florida for me is too much. You know, this is, okay. So after the end of winter, they find an Alexandrian Alexandrian ship. It's a commercial trading route coming from Egypt up to Rome. They're bringing grain on a regular basis. And there's another ship that's also made its way to Malta and is on the island and ready to leave. And so they jump on it. And it says that it had the twin gods as its figurehead. Most likely that was Castor and Pollux. Okay, they're twins. They're actually keeping safety at sea. It's, a, it's interesting because we see earlier in the last passage that the God of justice comes up. Now we see the gods that uh, they trust to protect them at sea. And the whole time Paul's like, I know a God that's greater than all this stuff you're talking about. I mean, we see the viper strike him and justice has no hold on him in that case. He's, he's right before the one who is just. And he goes on to this vessel. And some Christians today might see the gods, the twin gods on that vessel and have a hard time. Like, I'm not getting on that boat. That's under those gods. And he's like, I don't care. I'm getting to Rome. 
All right, look, I know the guy that's over all of these. Let's go. Putting in in Syracuse, we stayed three days. And from there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And the second day, we came to Puteola. Puteoli. She said it way better than I did. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. Okay, just want to give you an overview of what's happening because it's a lot of journeying. So the maps come up again. He's making this route. The next map here is a tight look on what, what he's doing up the coast. What are they taking him up the coast? See, they leave Malta and they go to these important port cities, Syracuse, Regium. They're staying close to the coast. And then they go on to the port that's up at uh, Puteoli, okay? In Puteoli. Now, what's interesting that happens at Puteoli is that he finds believers there. Nobody from the church, at least in Jerusalem, has been there. But there's believers there. We, 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 we see this. We go way back and see at Pentecost that there are Jews from all over who hear Peter. They accept Christ and they go back home. And now before Paul even shows up, he finds believers who are friends. And says he spends a week with them. So he goes on from Puteoli to head up to Rome. And that's, that's a hike I'm not making anytime soon, but you can see him going along the coast in the mountain range. And it says here that word spreads, meaning probably he was there for a week. There's probably believers that already made the trek to get up to Rome. Word spreads and believers in Rome find out that he's coming and they come down to travel to meet him. And they meet him at a place called the Forum of Appius and three taverns, which are 43 and 33 miles from Rome. These believers hiked. 43 and 33 miles to come down to meet him on the way up, which can you imagine? It says in this text, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. He is going to Rome, trusting in God, but without a doubt, you and I can say we trust God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, but there is, there's uncertainty awaiting him. What comes next in Rome? He doesn't even know. He knows there's a church there. He sent a letter to them. He says, I want to come see you. But he still doesn't know what, what, what really awaits him in Rome. And they know that. And the brothers and sisters make a 43-mile hike to encourage him, to welcome him, to walk with him. It says that seeing them here, that Paul was, took courage, and it speaks to the unity and the bond among believers Despite his hardships, the mere sight of these fellow believers uplifts his spirit. And when he gets to Rome, Paul is then placed under house arrest. It says it's unlined typical prisoners. He's also granted some freedoms, perhaps due to his Roman citizenship, perhaps maybe the nature of his appeal. He's not guilty, but he has that freedom granted. And what's the first thing he does when he gets to Rome? Look at verse 17. After three days, he called together the leader of the Jews, the leaders, when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He's giving them an overview of what's going on. After they examined me, they wanted to release me since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case because the Jews objected. 
I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I'm asked to see you and to speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. So three days after arriving, Paul has taken the initiative to meet with other local Jewish leaders in Rome. He's a prisoner, but his mission to spread the gospel, to meet his people, to bring it to them is still ongoing. It hasn't been put on pause. He lays out what's happened to him up to this point. He, he emphasizes that nothing he's done has been against the Jewish people, even though he's been accused of, of, of being anti the Jewish customs. And he wants to seek understanding with them and try to lay some groundwork for, for relationships to be able to, to preach the gospel to them. Paul's fully aware, I'm sure, that there has been dissent and disagreement and upheaval over Christianity already in Rome that between the Jews and the Christians, there were problems and that they were even expelled from the city. So they're fully aware of what's happening. But at this point, it's almost like they're like, what's the next thing that they, that they have put in play? We haven't received any letters from Judea. We don't, we don't know what's going on. But what's at the center of what Paul is telling them is that the reason I'm here is not because I'm against Jewish culture and against Jewish people, but his reference to the hope of Israel. It's this reason, this fact, it's for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. The things that we've heard the 12 tribes talk about, that they've looked forward to their Messiah, and that's the hope that I'm in chains for. He's constantly focused on this as his defense. It's Paul's testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus is both Messiah and Lord of Israel, and that's what has him in chains. And it's the issue that rests at the center of all our hope all of us. It's not just what has him in chains, but for us, the way Paul puts it when he talks to the Corinthians, he tells them if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. That's where he puts all his hope, all his hope. How do they respond to that? Well, they respond saying, as I've already mentioned, we haven't received any letters about you. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we do want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect, this cult, if you will. So the leaders say they haven't heard anything. The Jewish people aren't going to make that trek to try to get in front of Caesar and try to pull the stuff they've been doing in Caesarea. So Paul's there on his own. They, they know they don't have a defense. They have no accusation to bring. So nothing else comes of it. So they tell him, now, I want to hear what you have to say, Paul, for yourself. He arranges a day in verse 23 with many of them to come to his lodging. And from dawn till dusk, he expounds and, and testifies about the kingdom of God. He tries to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. He knows his audience. He's trying to appeal to them and say, just like Jesus does on the road to Emmaus, where he talks about everywhere in the law and the prophets where I am. He says, look at the law and the prophets. Messiah's coming. This is the thing about him. This is who he is. This is going. Here's Jesus. He's the one. And he has a lengthy, large meeting with all of these people trying to use the most clear explanation he can, methodically building the case. And the results are that some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. And then disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave right after Paul made one more statement. I hope this, I mean, I'm sure this was inspired. It wasn't just frustration, but he throws some Old Testament at them. Yeah, you just like Isaiah here. What did Isaiah say to you? 
the Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors, the prophet Isaiah 26, when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they've shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. See, not of all of the Jews were convinced. Some of them wanted to hear more. But Paul definitely charged up the situation because he pointed to what Isaiah had already told them. You guys are seeing it right in front of you, and you're callous to it. And this is not anti-Semitic. It's not just the Jews that can be guilty of this. This is a message for all of us, that our hearts not grow callous, that we not come in here and play church. I love seeing your faces, but I want to know that Christ is changing your heart. That we're not immune to what we hear day in and day out. I had this very conversation not long ago about the fact that that God is at work, that the church is expanding in places all around the world, and that in the West, there's this sense in which we almost have this little bit of an immunity. Like we've been a little inoculated, like old school style. We've had just enough Jesus that we're immune to what the power is in Christ. That we've defined church in this very closed, tight way that it's not much more than another club we go to and relationships we build and a community we attend. And before we step up on our high horse about how they did church poorly in the past, I will say that we are just at much of risk to redefine church in our own way and then check it off the list like a box and never have it actually change our lives. So Paul confronts them with their unbelief and their callousness, and we should take to heart the confrontation ourselves. This theme that he brings up is actually central to what Luke wants to reiterate at the end, that those that reject the gospel, specifically here the Jews, are not the end of the gospel proclamation. That Luke is trying to tell us that it's yes, first to the Jew, but now Paul says, but it's going to the Gentiles in the whole world. In case we haven't already clearly defined that, Gentiles are basically everybody in here. The fact that God had no intention of merely just saving his people, but rather to work through his people to bless the world. And so Paul continues to minister unhindered. Verse 30, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. Remember, there was no right to a speedy trial. He's in his house rented. It sounds he's I mean, I guess he's getting supported by people. I hate to think he's having to pay for his own living arrangements, but he's got a house he's living in. And he welcomes all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You may notice there's a verse 29 that's not present. I like to acknowledge those things for you so you're not confused. Okay, if you're looking at a CSB, some other versions have it. And if you do, it doesn't really change the story. It's just simply reiterating that the Jews left arguing. That's it. So earlier manuscripts we found in caves 
So it didn't have it. So like, I guess that might've been commentary, who knows? But that, that's not changing the story. What's present here is that for two years, he lived in a rented house. He welcomed visitors, he had freedom. And even the book of Acts ends on this note, even in chains, the gospel cannot be bound. See, you know, on this journey that we've traveled with Paul through the pages of Acts, this ending can seem a bit jarring. Uh, here we are, we're at the heart of the empire with Paul, God's chosen vessel to the Gentiles. He's bound in chains. There's no dramatic courtroom scene. There's no final verdict read aloud. There's no concluding act to Paul's journey. It really begs the question, what exactly are we meant to feel about this moment? What's the message behind this ending that Luke has for us? And what seems apparent is that Luke takes his narrative of God's kingdom advancing through the mission of the early church, and he concludes it in a manner that both offers a contrast between the worldly perspective and a true kingdom reality. And he does it all while leaving us with an open invitation to this unfinished work. Let's first take a look at the different viewpoints to the end of Acts as both being tragic and triumphant. The end of Acts is both tragic and triumphant. From the world's perspective, this looks like a tragic tale. I mean, look at this. Consider, Paul has an ongoing imprisonment. He's, he's, he's gone through trials. He's gone through shipwrecks. He still finds himself in chains. This is not what we want our hero to be. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We didn't, I didn't write this as, as, as my plan for life. Hey, I'm going to get arrested and then I'm going to spread the gospel. That's not Paul's doing either. But from an earthly perspective, this doesn't look like a triumphant arrival. He's bound. He's under guard. He's restricted to a rented house. Secondly, he's being falsely accused by his own people. I mean, nationalities and people groups, I mean, that might seem like a big deal now, but back then, like, they're, they're Jewish in the midst of Roman control. You look out for one another. That's why it was such a big deal for those who would join as tax collectors to join in with the Romans against their own people. And Paul's being falsely accused. It's, it's tragic. It could be seen as tragic that Paul feels the need to explain himself and he's trying to explain, I'm not against you guys. We're on the same team. Thirdly, Jesus is being rejected by God's own people. They sent Jesus. God sent Jesus for his people. And they're like, ah, I don't think that's the right one. Raised from the dead, empty tomb. We'll look for the next one. Paul spends a significant time teaching the scriptures about Jesus, but they're not all convinced. They're being rejected then we see the gospel is going to the Gentiles. But it looks like a plan B, to be honest with you. You can look at it that way, right? Oh, it didn't work with my people. So now I got all these rest of them. I'm gonna try them out. And then finally, it's an unfinished story. I don't know if you're into this, but this week I decided to take my, my, my kids, uh, two of my kids to see this new Spider-Man movie because it was the last week it was out, right? Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Um... I enjoyed it. <laughs> but we were getting to a point in the movie, and I felt like it had been a little while, and I 
just had this feeling about the scene and the way it was moving. And I just leaned over. I had no idea. I hadn't heard any of this. I'm sorry if you feel like this is spoiling it. It's okay. You'll be fine. But I leaned over to my, my daughter and I was like, to be continued. And sure enough, that's what popped up on the screen right away. To be continued. It was a whole movie that didn't have a closure, any closure. That was awful. <laughs> no, it was a good movie. But I'm like, I got to pay a whole nother like 15 bucks to come in here and watch the rest of this. <laughs> I'll rent that one. No. So in some respects, this feels like this unopened, unfinished story. That's very unsatisfying. What's, what's going on? What's next? But I have to tell you that while the world might look at this ending and see tragedy, let's look at this as its kingdom realities through spiritual lenses. What does it look like? Paul's finally getting to Rome. He said he was coming. He long desired to be there. It's the epicenter of the known world. Even as a prisoner, God fulfills his plan and promise for him to witness there. And it's a testament to God's providence to get him there and do it with a Roman escort. Secondly, he has a warm reception by believers he's never met. Despite being a prisoner, Paul is met by brothers in Christ who come out to see him some 30 to 40 miles just to encourage his heart. We also see that Paul has a freedom to meet with people, to teach, to preach. He might be in chains, but they give him all the reins. Paul is able to call the Jewish leaders to him to convene a larger meeting with freedom and opportunity to teach, even under guard. Look at, look at what Paul does, where he enables, um, where God does, where he enables Paul to reach the Jewish diaspora. That means the dispersed Jews. Not only has he come to the center of all that's happening, he's reaching out to the influential Jewish com community that's there in the heart of the empire. And some of them were convinced. Paul, Paul's being used by God to now take the gospel to the Gentiles. We said that looks like it could be a tragedy, like it's a plan B. But the fact that the gospel going to the Gentiles was not a fallback. It was fully God's plan. And it's a powerful reminder of God's intention to bring salvation to all nations. It was always his plan for the message of Jesus to be for everyone, everywhere. We see the unhindered proclamation of the gospel. He not only has meat and convening, but he ongoing, unhindered, he's able to speak the gospel, underscoring the unstoppable nature of the gospel. Despite all the obstacles, Paul is continuing to preach and teach boldly. We see an impact on the Praetorian Guard. It's not directly in this particular passage, but we know from a letter that Paul writes while he's there to the Philippians that he says in Philippians 1, 12 through 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. I'm in chains. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's chained to a member of the Roman guard and he has a captive audience. He gets to hear him teaching day in and day out. Get a meal, pray over his meal. Oh, you know who I'm praying to? Let me tell you about him. And they do it on rotation. Ain't the same guy. So the whole guard finds out. It wasn't a setback. It was a divinely orchestrated strategy. Paul's, including, we're talking about Philippians. What about Paul's writings from prison? 
During his Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote several epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and a letter he wrote to Philemon. These letters have instructed, corrected, encouraged the church throughout history. I mean, what looks like a downtime for Paul turns into what, one of his most productive periods of his ministry, where he's encouraging the body of believers he's not with. And finally, we're reminded, if we look at this through kingdom eyes, of the gospel perseverance. The book of Acts concludes with a focus on the continued proclamation of the kingdom of God. It sets a triumphant tone, emphasizing not the challenges that Paul faced, but the unstoppable nature of God's message. I mean, from a worldly perspective, we might see chains and obstacles but the spiritual perspective witnesses the sovereign hand of God, using every situation for the advancement of his kingdom. The end of Acts showcases the unstoppable, boundary-breaking, all-encompassing power of the gospel. And it reminds us that God always triumphs for his people. When I say God always triumphs for his people, I'm really only summarizing what Paul later says in Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Like our day-to-day -day experience may not look so great. We're not, not being changed and it might seem tragic, but for those who are who love God and called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And that's a hard saying when you're really in it. Like, I don't really want to be brash about the way we use that, that, that passage. That's a reminder and a salve for your soul well before you're actually in the circumstance. That your heart be prepared to know that in spite of what I see in front of me, that God's hand is at work. And some of us may have experienced heart-wrenching tragedy in our lives. I understand that. Circumstances where you can hardly understand anything good coming from it. And, and might I encourage you, if you're setting with a friend who is in that circumstance, don't use Romans 8.28. Not then. Let the Spirit lead you. It's possible that some of you in here or someone that you love has experienced some horrific abuse by people, by people you should be able to trust. And that measure of harm perpetrated against anyone grieves me, and it probably grieves every one of you to think that people in trusting positions would level abuse against others and those are tragedies but one of the stories that I've always appreciated that relates to this is the one about Hagar in Genesis she is really a tragic situation where she's a servant as an Egyptian to, to Abraham and Sarah and caught up in a really awful spousal dispute where she becomes impregnated with Abraham's son. They try to do stuff by working around God. And to get her out of the circumstance, God just says, send her away. Now, if you can imagine a single mom whose only life has been a servant, a slave, someone who serves the family of no value, 
of, of no really outlook of hope in your life. It says that she sets down under a tree literally to just go ahead and die, sets her baby across the way to let him die so she doesn't have to see him. And that God comes to her with the name, the God who sees. That while my heart is grieved, and while you and I, when we see tragedy, are grieved, God sees all of it. And he knows our situation, and he is in control, and more important, he is trustworthy. And your temporal circumstance can be overwhelming and seem tra tragic, but God's triumph is for eternity. His, his view is to save you and all people from Genesis to Revelation. Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, he was, he was stolen from his family and he was sent to be a slave somewhere else by his brothers. You're talking about people you should trust. I'm expecting my brother to sell me into slavery. And at the end of it all, when he is risen from slavery to power and he is set over Egypt to save people and his family has to come to him for help, his brothers are afraid of how he'll retaliate. This guy we just sent to slavery, all of a sudden he's got the power of Egypt. And the way that Joseph responds is so instructive. He tells his brothers, look, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You can't thwart God's plan by your evil, and neither can anyone who perpetrates evil against you. And Luke, when he points out the trials and tribulation, the tragedy, if you will, in Paul's life, he does it in such a way to continually draw our attention to Jesus. Paul's trials in these last chapters are intended to point us to Jesus. Paul is falsely accused and he's taken before a Roman governor. The governor finds no fault and sends him before Herod. Herod finds nothing wrong with Paul and sends him back. That governor now wants to do the Jewish leaders a favor and hand over Paul, but Paul gets out of it by appealing to Caesar. Look at Jesus, he's falsely accused and he goes before Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him, finds nothing wrong and sends him to Herod. Herod is mildly entertained and sends him back. It's got nothing to do with him. And Pilate, to appease the Jewish crowd, offers up Jesus or Barabbas to free or to die. And the crowd chooses Jesus to die. And Jesus willingly takes it. He doesn't appeal to Caesar. While Paul is facing overwhelming injustice, there is no greater tragedy or injustice than what was perpetrated against Jesus. He's innocent and he's murdered. He laid down his life willingly and he did it for you and me. He did it for us. Brothers and sisters, this is the way we have to see the world in our circumstances. It's not measured by what the world does to you or what you're experiencing in it. It's measured by the goodness and grace of who God is and what he's given us in Christ. Even Paul tells the Corinthians that from now on, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective, not even Jesus. The brokenness in this world is all a result of the enemies of God at work and all those who oppose the rightful rule of King Jesus. They're the ones. 
but regardless of their best efforts, their power has an expiration date. The hope of Israel is also our hope, friends. That, that in the tragic murder of Jesus, he resurrects triumphantly over Satan's sin and death. This nobody in Jerusalem they put to death is actually the risen triumphant king. He's made a way of salvation. He's offered it to you and I. And Paul tells us, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It has no hold on us. That's the message of our hope, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's the message that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's why this passage is also an open invitation. The end of Acts is an open invitation. It's an invitation for us to join the mission to spread the message. If you and I believe in that hope and trust in that hope, there are many people who don't know it. There are people we know that don't trust in it. And while we can't force them, God is inviting us into the message to look at this last bit, to be like Paul, that he is in a rented house for two whole years and where he's at in an un what is really like an unideal, an inideal, what's the right word for that? What is not an ideal situation, less than ideal. He welcomes all who visited him and proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches them about Jesus Christ. By the way, with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness and without hindrance. It's something he actually asked people in his letters, pray for us to have a bold witness. He asked for prayer. After resurrecting and before ascending to heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples. We should know this verse, Matthew 8, 20, I'm sorry, 28, 18. I don't even know the reference. Okay, 28, 18 through 20, where he tells them to make disciples of all nations. And at the beginning of Acts, we see that he tells his disciples they're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Peter kicks off the church at Pentecost with a huge revival. Let me tell you, 3,000. We have that kind of a pulpit call up here, an altar call. We're rolling. But he kicks off the church, get this, by preaching to Jews from all the nations. And now it ends with Paul taking the gospel from the Jews to all the nations. And I'm going to tell you that Paul tells you this. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be like me. Share about the kingdom. And so I have to ask the question, what is hindering us? What, Paul's unhindered. What's hindering us? What, where are we lacking in boldness? What's hindering our mission, church? And, and the first thing I can only think of is that if you're not on this mission, you might not know the kingdom of God in Jesus. That's first. And that is something that we want to remedy. We want to introduce you to that king. Jesus is king. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are no longer under the rule and reign and terror of those who oppose Christ. He's on the throne. But beyond that, believers, if you're someone who says they follow Christ, what's hindering us? If you say no him, what hinders us? Being like Paul, where we are, to meet everyone who would come to us and speak boldly. I'm not telling you to have like this 
trite little map of well, this is how I talk about Jesus and everybody who comes to me, that's all they're going to hear from me. But being a person who knows Christ so intimately that any time, in any circumstance, in and out of season, we are prepared to be able to share the good news of our hope in the gospel. Is it, is it fear of man or persecution? Scripture says that there were Pharisees who came to Jesus and heard him preach, and some of them actually believed Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Is it, is it love of money or worldly possessions? Well, what's, what's invading our heart? In Matthew, we're told that no one can serve two masters, for he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll devote the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and worldly possessions. You cannot pursue both. Is it doubt or just lack of faith? It's okay to have questions. It's okay to, to seek out those questions. And we want to do that with you. But if you just lack faith that God will do what he says he'll do, is that hindering you? Is it peer pressure? Is it desire just to be accepted by others? Is it a lack of understanding? Or like Paul talks about with Isaiah, is it spiritual hardness? Our hearts hardened. We hear the parable of the sower who throws out seed to all the grounds in Matthew, and it tells us that when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes up and snatches it away. What was sown in his heart, this one, this is the one sown along the path, meaning it just hits hard ground, it doesn't penetrate, and we're easily taken astray. Or is it personal sin and unrepentance? I have an uneasy spirit that that's one of the biggest ones for us, brothers and sisters. In the Psalms, we're told if we're aware of malice in our heart, the Lord does not have, would not listen. Isaiah 59 tells us your iniquities are building barriers between you and your God, and your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. Is it sin and unrepentance? Is it bitterness and unforgiveness? Ephesians 4, Paul tells us, be angry and do not sin and don't let the sun go down in your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. He literally connects the two. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. That in bitterness ingrained in your hearts, let me, let me clear this up if you guys already didn't, didn't know this. This is quite clearly not saying rush to try to like not be angry before the sun sets, okay? That's not what he's talking about here. If you have like a disagreement on that, we could talk later. In fact, I would venture to say some of us might want to sleep something off from time to time, okay? If you got some stuff you need to deal with. Instead, it's saying don't let that anger just rest in your heart. Okay, don't close the book without dealing with it, without addressing the issue you have with a brother or sister, without extending forgiveness. I know, I know husbands and wives that have done their time like till six sunset, sunrise, 6 a.m. because they were like, I can't let the night end. I can't go to bed without dealing with this. And I can tell you, I'd be angry by, by 2 a.m. I'd be like, done, we are done, babe. <laughs> We're done. I'd be more angry, I'm saying. 
But what Paul tells us is that sin, that unrepentance, that unforgiveness is directly connected to giving Satan an opportunity in your life. It's not pleasing to God because who has forgiven any more than God has in Christ? We've experienced the greatest of forgiveness and there's repentance available. There's forgiveness available at the cross. Is that hindering us? And finally, is it distractions or just the worries of life? Is that in the way? Are you so consumed with what's going on in your life right now? Are you kind of as, as, um, as Jesus wor- uh, warned us, are you anxious for tomorrow? Luke, in the same parable of the sower and the seed, said that sometimes the seed falls among thorns. And in those thorns... When they've heard, they go on their way and they're choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life that produce no mature fruit. These are all things. This is truly an opportunity as we consider this invitation. These are all things that we need to look in our own hearts and consider what is hindering me. If I'm supposed to make disciples and I'm supposed to imitate Paul, what is hindering me? Because all these tragedies that seem to unfold on Paul do not shake his resolve. Because he's able to see the triumphant kingdom underneath it all. That the world can do anything it wants. What he says is light and momentary affliction. My man was shipwrecked and he was lost at sea. He was bit by a random viper. He was stoned and left for dead multiple times. And he's like, that's light and momentary. I, I stub my toe when I'm walking across the room and I'm like done for the afternoon. I got big toes. They hurt. I was laughing. She's like, it always happens to you. It does. But what is hindering us, brothers and sisters? My prayer for us is that we would find ourselves like Paul in the situation where no matter where we are, whether it's in chains, where it's walking the street, whether it's at our job, where it's at the coffee shop, that we're prepared in and out of season to proclaim the kingdom of God and the King Jesus who rules over it all and to do it boldly, to do it with discernment and wisdom, clarity, be winsome. You don't have to be boring like me. People can like you and still they can hear about Jesus. Those two things don't have to be different. You don't have to be the weird guy that walks up with an awkward track and don't know what you're saying. I'm saying, try that first, that's fine. Just get past that. Be a friend to somebody. Love them, not just try to win them to some sales pitch. Feels like Amway, some of our our pitches, just seriously, like multi-level marketing. You guys know Amway is, Quick Start. I don't know what you've done lately recently. Okay, all right, whatever it is. My age is showing. Let's follow this king and love him so much that we would be bold in our witness and let's imitate Paul. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the privilege it is to see your work through Paul. Man, you change the world through Jesus and you do it working through your humble servants. God, make us humble. Teach us, change us. God, whatever it is that's hindering each one of us today, I pray that you would expose that. Open up our hearts and our minds. Give us eyes to see. 
Lord, compel our hearts to want to be like Paul. Lord, to share the good news of the hope of the gospel to all those around us. It doesn't have to end with us. God, my fear is if it does terminate in our lives, has it really done anything to change us? God, fill us with your spirit. Open our, our eyes. Just as Jesus said that we would be given power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. God, I pray that power would fuel the mission. You're changing the world, and you're doing it here. You're doing it overseas. You're doing it in our neighborhoods. And what a privilege it would be if King's Cross Church would be able to see you work in beautiful and amazing and transformative ways in the lives of people in our city and around the world through our people. We're just vessels. Would you change us to be more like Christ? And would you fill us with the strength to live like Paul on mission, advancing the kingdom? I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.